Okay. On Super Bowl Sunday, I have like an hour and ten minute sermon to preach. It's going to be long. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. Maybe it's... But I was thinking, you know, if we can watch a football game for three hours, uh, we can have a little fun here this morning. Amen? (laughs) I'm kidding, kind of. (laughs) All right, let's stand uh, for the reading of God's word. We've made it to Matthew 22. And I am going to start with verse 34. And if you have a Bible like mine, this is found on page 699. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, I love that. He just shut them up. The Pharisees kind of huddle up. Now, now it's our turn. And one of the Torah teachers, one of their expert Torah teachers, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the Torah? And Jesus replied with, Shema, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloeha. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because the whole Torah, the entire Old Testament, hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, (laughs) I love this, now it's his turn. Who do you think, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, well, how is it then that David speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord. For David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will put my enemies under your feet. Well, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one said a word in reply from that day on. No one dared to ask him any more questions. He shut them up too, didn't he? Did anybody read this this week? Because now we're getting into an intense passage, Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the Torah teachers, the Pharisees, they do sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you to do, but not what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads, they put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide. Their tassels on their garments are long. They love the place of honor at the banquets, the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces. They love to have men call them rabbi. Skipping down to verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces, but you yourselves do not enter, nor do you let those enter who are, tr- who are trying to. And woe to you, Torah teachers, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by an oath. You fools. What is greater, the gold or the the temple that makes the gold sacred? Skipping down to verse 25. Woe to you, Torah teachers and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside will also be clean. And woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Your whitewashed tombs, which look so beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of death and uncleanness. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. This is God's word. You can be seated. All right, by way of review, um, we are in the last week of Jesus' life. 
and Jesus and his disciples make the trek to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with literally millions of other Jews from all over the world. But Jesus is not just there to celebrate Passover. He's there to be the final Passover. And when he enters Jerusalem, <laughs> he doesn't just enter, does he? he? He enters in a way that he's acting like he is Messiah. And then he goes right into the temple and he acts like, this house, this house is my house. I own this house. And of course, he's met with massive confrontation. And we know where this confrontation is going. It's going to end with a crucifixion. But here's a question I want to raise right now. Who is it that's confronting Jesus? Is it Romans? No. He'll end up in the hands of the Romans, but it's not the Romans. Is it the Jews? Yes and no. To, to, to say it's the Jews would be probably like saying the Americans killed Abraham Lincoln. Did the Americans kill Abraham Lincoln? Did the Jews kill Jesus? No, the people who are confronting Jesus are the same people who will eventually kill Jesus. It's religious people who killed Jesus. And I want us to see that. Religious people kill Jesus. It's two groups of people. It's the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And both these groups are very different. When you think Sadducee, you need to think temple. Because they get their name from, from Zadok, the Zadokim or the Sadducees. Zadok was the priest when David was king. And so they are descendants of Zadok. So these guys are the priests and Levites who run the temple. So the temple is their baby. And you talk about a moneymaker in Jesus' day. I mean, the temple coined money. You had the temple tax. You had the temple sacrifices. In fact, Josephus tells us that 250,000 lambs were sacrificed uh, at Passover alone. 250,000. And who do you think sold these lambs? The Sadducees are the aristocracy, because priests at that day were at the top of the food chain. These guys lived in luxurious mansions in Jerusalem that were adorned with Roman everything. Many of them had vacation villas in Jericho. And here's the deal. The Sadducees are in bed with the Romans because Rome kept the peace and preserved their place of privilege in that day. Remember, you didn't become a Pharisee. You're born a Pharisee. You're born into this privilege. So Jesus comes to town. You've got to picture this. And he basically says, this house is my house. In fact, I can rearrange the furniture in this place because I own it. And he says, this whole enterprise is going out of business. It's going to become obsolete. Because temple is me. Sacrifice, I'm the final sacrifice. Priest, I'm the final priest. So you think the Sadducees had anything to do with the death of Jesus? The Pharisees now are this other group. And we've seen in this gospel that they've been constantly sparring with Jesus. And look at uh, chapter 22, verse 35. Pharisees get together, and one of their expert Torah teachers tested him with this question, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the Torah? Now, I think this question is less about tricking Jesus and more about finding, Jesus, find, finding out, Jesus, what side are you on? Are you a Sadducee or are you a Pharisee? Because the way a Sadducee would answer this question is, the greatest commandment, of course, is to be holy. And all the laws about purity and cleanness and uncleanness would be at the top of their list. But to a Pharisee, 
The greatest commandment by far is Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the very first thing every Jew learned when they were still in diapers. It's the first thing on their lips every morning when they woke. It was the last thing on their lips when they went at bed at night. And Shema basically begins with this declaration. In a polytheistic world where there's a God for everything, every activity, a God for every day of the week, Shema is the declaration that Yahweh alone is Lord. And that nothing falls outside of his lordship. He's Lord of my Sunday. He's Lord of my Monday. He's Lord of my public life. He's Lord of my private life. He's Lord over my time. He's Lord over my possessions, my relationships. He's Lord over me. All of me. That's what Shema declares. And a Jew not only declares it, but they pray it. So it's Yahweh. You alone be my God. Help me to love you with every, every ounce and fiber of my being. And so I'm sure when Jesus said, well, of course, the greatest commandment is uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, I can hear a lot of amens, a lot of them. But here's where this gets interesting. Jesus adds a twist. He says, and a second is like it. And he doesn't just, okay, I'm going to add now my thing to God's word. No, he's not doing that. He pairs Deuteronomy 6, Shema, with Leviticus 19, 18. Now, what's interesting is grammatically he can put these two together because these two verses share a rare word that's only used three times in the Bible. One in Deuteronomy 6, where you have Shema, and the other in Leviticus 19, verse 18. And it's this, this Hebrew word, ve'ahavta, which means you shall love. Now, what I want us to see is what Jesus just did. Because he's not just saying, okay, hey, while I'm at it, let me give you my second greatest commandment. It's not what he's doing. He's saying there's a second commandment that is actually on par with Shema. And that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I want us to see the brilliance of the Bible. The Bible is not asking us to love humanity. To love humanity, that's easy. It's asking us to love our neighbor. To love the person in front of you. The person next to you, the person across the street, the person you can see, the person you can feel, the person you can touch, love them. And what Jesus just did is he just raised up loving one's neighbor and he made it equal to Shema. He says, it is like it. It's the same as, and I want us to hear this. To love God and to love our neighbor are one and the same thing. You can't separate the vertical with the horizontal. We've been blessed to bless. We've been loved to love. We've been adopted to adopt. And any Christian that says, I love God best in isolation in my private prayer room, doesn't get the heart of God. You want to love God? Love people. Les Miserables, right? To love another person is to see the face of God. Okay, I like this. These guys have been on the offensive with Jesus, but now Jesus takes his turn and he goes on the offensive. He says, all right, guys, I have a riddle for you. Whose son is the Messiah? Now, that's obvious to these guys. Okay, and they know it. They know Jesus is setting them up. Like, of course, it's David's son. 
That's what the Bible says. He's going to be a descendant of David. In fact, Jesus then quotes one of their most loved psalms of their day. It's, it's, it's a psalm of David, and it's pregnant with the hope of Messiah. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, which literally reads, we don't see this. It says, Yahweh said to my Adonai, or the Lord said to my Messiah. So what you have in this psalm is David, Israel's ultimate king, and he's calling the Messiah, my Lord. David's looking up to this king. He is calling him my Lord and my Messiah. He's my king. So here's Jesus' question. How can David's son also be David's Lord? Are you tracking with this riddle? Because it's a good one. What Jesus is doing here is he's correcting their misconceptions about Messiah. They're so focused on what Messiah would do that they forgot who Messiah would be. In their minds, Messiah is simply going to be a son of David, a descendant, a mere mortal, a human being. And what Jesus is doing is, "Uh uh-uh, guys, look at this psalm. You're thinking way too small about Messiah, because how can you say that the Christ is simply a descendant, a mere mortal, a mere human, when David himself calls him Lord? And here's the logical answer. Do you want the answer to the riddle? David's son can only be David's Lord if he is God's son. And see, now Jesus has just used this riddle to answer their earlier question, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus is essentially telling them, my authority is so much more than just being a descendant of David, a mere human, a mere mortal. My authority is that I am God's son. I am Lord. And I say, brilliant. It's brilliant. And they too want to kill him, not for what Jesus does. The Pharisees want to kill him for who Jesus claims to be. He claims to be God. All right, now we're going to step into Matthew 23. This stinging stinging rebuke of the Pharisees. Now, to understand this text, I really feel like we need to understand the Pharisees because, in my opinion, the Pharisees are the most misunderstood people in the Bible. So let me first of all say a few things that a Pharisee isn't or wasn't. A Pharisee is not the biblical word for hypocrite. It has become that, but that is not what Pharisee meant in Jesus' day. Pharisee is not even an official title, nor is it a formal position. This is what Pharisee means. It means a total life commitment to the text. That's a Pharisee. That's why in verse 1, Jesus says, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. By the way, I don't know. Did, we, did I give PowerPoint this week? Do you guys know what Moses' seat is? <laughs> I'm sitting in it right there. We're sitting in a, uh, in a, in a ruins of a synagogue in Koritzin. And uh, there you have it. And that was in the synagogue. And the, the person who would be opening God's word that day and who would be explaining God's word that day, would sit in Moses' seat. That's all that Moses' seat uh, is or means. So listen to me. If the Sadducees made their home in the temple, the Pharisees made their home in the synagogue. And here's what I also want you to know, that unlike the aristocratic Sadducees, the Pharisees are commoners. They are blue-collar scholars. But to be a Pharisee meant you were all about the Bible. That the consuming passion of your life was to know it so you could obey it, so you could teach it, and so you could push it into other people. You could, you could raise up disciples who knew the word, loved the word, and lived the word. 
Verse 5. You see that word phylactery. Does anyone know what a phylactery is? The Hebrew word is tefillim. Really? No one knows what that is. Okay, I think I got a PowerPoint of that one too. Well, we got to know this stuff. Oh, we don't? Shoot. All right. Anyway, you, you still see it when you go to, you see an Orthodox Jew today. Do you ever see them with that big box on their head? Okay. And then they got this, this thing wrapped around their arms with, with, with another little like thing. You ever see that? Okay, this is the, these are, those are the phylacteries. Inside the box is Shema. Why do they do this? Why do they wear this? Deuteronomy 6. God says, I want you to put Torah on your forehead and I want you to wrap it around your arm. They take it literally. That's how serious they are about the word of God. That's a Pharisee. And probably the best way to understand these guys is to understand how they evolved. Because they're birthed out of this massive culture war. Because for much of the biblical story, Israel's dealings and interactions are with people who are much like them. They're Semites. They're Easterners. Uh, they're, They're dealing with their cousins. Same values. Same way of life. But everything changes 333 years before Jesus, when you have this blonde-haired, blue-eyed conqueror named who? Alexander the Great. He not only conquers that part of the world, he westernizes it. And you're talking about a world that had never seen McDonald's or Starbucks. That's what's going on. They were like people from another planet, not just in their look, but they brought a whole different view of the world, a whole different set of values. The new culture that they brought was called Hellenism. To sum up Hellenism, Hellenism is essentially this idea that man is the measure of all things. It was humanism. And what flowed out of this this humanism was this sex-saturated, sport-obsessed, body-exalting, mind-worshipping people. I mean, you have to understand, before Alexander the Great, they had never seen a theater, they had never seen an arena. And I've said this before, prior to the Apostle Paul, Alexander the Great was the world's greatest missionary because wherever he went, he preached the gospel of Hellenism. He planted Greek cities, and in these cities, he adorned uh, these cities with theaters, arenas, temples, gymnasiums, and all these things did was propagate Hellenism this Western mindset. And really not much has changed in 2,000 years. Because even today, the way that this part of the world knows us, I can sum it up in three words. Hollywood, sport, and sex. And that's how that part of the world thinks about the West. I'll add one more. Materialism. And it's out of this culture war that the Pharisees emerge. And they emerge as a force. They say, we are not going to accommodate. We're not going to become like the world around us. We're going to remain faithful to God. We're going to remain obedient to his Torah. Then 150 years before Christ, you have a ruler named Antichus Epiphanes. He's so determined to Hellenize these Jews He outlaws the reading of Torah. He outlaws circumcision. He outlaws uh, Sabbath and the celebration of the feast. Not only does he outlaw, but anyone who's caught doing those things is put to death. The blood flowed. Women and children. Under the sword. Then just decades before Jesus another ruler comes in and he attempts to Hellenize the Jews and he becomes so frustrated with this group of people called the Pharisees because they are standing in the way that he decides to throw a banquet. So he 
invites 800 Pharisees and their families to be his guests. And as the banquet is going on, he brings in his soldiers. He executes, executes them Domitian style. You know what that is? He hangs all the Pharisees on crosses. They're literally lining the streets. And while they're hanging on the cross, dying, he brings out their women, their women and children. Horrible things are done to them. And then their throats are slit before their eyes. And see, we think we have culture wars today. And see, by the time of Jesus, Josephus tells us that the Pharisees were easily the most influential and respected group among the Jews. And the reason for this is they're just part of the common people. And they're the ones who understood Torah. And they're the ones who are teaching Torah. And, and they're the ones that are committed. They're so committed to God's word. And they're, they're committed to taking God's word and teaching God's people God's word. I mean, remember what Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 5. He says, and concerning the Torah, I'm a Pharisee. That's Paul simply saying, I'm a man who's consumed with the book. In fact, in Acts, at the end of his life, Paul doesn't say, I was a Pharisee. Paul says, I am a Pharisee. He never stopped being a Pharisee. Paul died a Pharisee. Paul never stopped being consumed with the Bible, knowing it and living it. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee. And I'm going to say this. Of all the groups in Jesus' day, Jesus had more in common with the Pharisees than anyone else. Jesus had no official title like them. Jesus, like them, also shared this this passionate commitment to the text. He he had this this commitment to raising up disciples. Uh, The Pharisees also had this commitment to evangelism. So did Jesus. Jesus does most of his ministry in their place of influence in the synagogue. So why this stinging rebuke? I mean, think about it. Jesus doesn't rebuke Romans. He doesn't rebuke pagans. He doesn't rebuke traitors. He doesn't rebuke prostitutes. But these Bible-believing, Bible-obeying people, he smokes them. Seven times he says, whoa. Whoa is just, are you kidding me? Like, why would you put whoa in there? It doesn't come close to getting at, at what Jesus is. He's cursing them. Seven times he's saying, damn you, Pharisee. He is. Why? Well, their first big flaw, do you remember that day when I stood on the speaker? I'll do it again. (laughs) Remember how we are? It's like, okay, here's the line. Christians get as close as they can to the line. Okay, let's say the line here is, uh, you cannot commit adultery. We just uh, get as close as we can, right, right, right? And sometimes we fall over and plunge in and then pull ourselves back out, saved by grace. Not a Jew. Pharisee? If this is the line... Are you kidding me? They don't just jump. I mean, they stink and run. They're, they're running out the gym, away from it. But here's what happened. If God has one law, they put a fence around it. They come up with 101 more rules so they can keep this one rule, and these 101 other rules are to ensure that they're not going to break that rule. Does that sound good? The problem is, is when these 101 rules, which are man-made rules. God never said the 101. They become more authoritative than what God says. They're doing this all the time. That's why Jesus says in in, in verse 4, he says, "You, you bind them with such a heavy yoke. And then you look at verses 16 through 24, all these things that Jesus is criticizing them for, you're not going to find them in God's word. These are all man-made rules. 
In fact, that, 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 that Pharisee in Jesus' parable, the, the, the parable in Luke of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And I, I, this Pharisee, Jesus says, he gets up in the temple and he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like all those people. And then he lists a few of the commandments that are in God's word. But then he says, and I fast twice a week. He just sneaks that in there. Where is fasting and the command to fast in God's word? Where? There's only one time when God called his people to fast, and it's on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so what the Pharisee is doing is he's taking something that's a minor and he's making it a major. Or to borrow from Neil, he's, he's screaming where God's word just whispers. He raises it up, and in raising it up, he raises himself up. I mean, you guys only fast once a year. I do it two times a week. And I'm better than you. I'm morally superior to you. They did this with everything. They did this with the Sabbath. They did this with all the clean, unclean rules. If God had one rule, they came up with a hundred more. For instance, in Matthew 15, because this is where this whole thing starts. The issue now is hand washing. (laughs) What's wrong with you, Jesus? You and your disciples don't wash your hands before a meal. (laughs) Where's that in the Bible? And see, this is why Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me because they they worship me in vain. Their teachings are nothing more than rules taught by men. In fact, what happened is the 101 man-made rules ended up nullifying the thing that God lays out. Now listen, before we throw these guys under the bus... We do the same thing. Let me just take worship. Sunday morning worship. Hey, I'll be the first to admit, we worship a certain way here. We, our, our, our worship is, it, it's quite loud. It's, it, it's emotive. Um, a lot of people don't worship this way. Some people, it's just really quiet. and They're just sitting down taking notes. But for us to like, Sit here and say, what's wrong with you people? You're just dead. You don't worship God. We worship God. Or they probably look at us and say, you guys are so shallow and mindless and thoughtless and emotional. Where's all this stuff in the Bible about how to worship? I'm going to tell you something going above the line of Scripture, the line of truth in Scripture, is every bit as dangerous as going below it. And here's my question. I mean, I, I, I like to look at the why. Like, why do we do this? Especially in the church. I thought about that this week, and I think this is the reason why. I want to go to the root here. All of us have a deep hunger for approval. To feel like we are okay. To feel that we are all right. And we know we can't do this for ourselves, unless you're really proud and arrogant. We know we need someone from the outside who can assure us of this. Someone beside ourselves parents, siblings, friends, teacher, coach, people in our life who who mean something to us, who know us to the core, and they look at us and they say, you're all right, you're okay. We hunger for this kind of approval. And see, this goes all the way back to the beginning. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, totally exposed, known to the core, unashamed. See, this is what lost when, when sin entered the world. 
There they are hiding in the bushes, covering themselves with fig leaves. See, we're not okay, and we know it. For instance, why do you always feel this constant need to prove yourself? Why are you always driven to win and to succeed? Why are you such a perfectionist? Why is it that you can't fail? Or when you do fail, that you can't show those failures to others? Why are you so obsessed with how you look and with your appearance? Why do you always feel this need to perform? We're still hiding. We're still trying to cover ourselves. They interviewed Howard Stern recently. Boy, maybe I don't have that guy in here. Did I drop something? Because that's the last page of my notes, too. Here we go. (laughs) Howard Stern said uh, something very, very interesting. Um, He's speaking on his need for approval. He says, the curse I feel all the time is I take my performance so seriously. He says, I got to know, do you think I did a good show today? Are you satisfied? Do you like me? He said, if you want to know my neurosis, this is it. That's the source of all my problems. Do you like me because you like my show? I did a good job. You see, this is the game the religious person plays. Hey, look at me. Look at my show and how well I perform and like me. Approve of me. Look at verse 5. Jesus calls him out on this. He says, everything they do is done for men to see. By the way, does anyone know what the hypocrite, what the word hypocrite meant in Jesus' day? It's a technical term. It's the Greek technical term for actor or actress. Those on stage in the theaters were called hypocrites. So Jesus takes this word to say, Pharisee, you are nothing more than an actor. The whole thing you're doing has become a show. In fact, this is Jesus' sting and rebuke of them in the Sermon on the Mount. Everything they do is done so, so people can see them. But it's deeper than this. Look at where his rebuke goes in verses 25 and 26. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. See, this is their next great fall. The Pharisee desperately wanted to believe that sin is where? It's out there. It's not in here. It's not within me. It's outside of me. So that's why their whole strategy became, as long as I stay away from that place, and I don't touch that, and I don't eat that, and I don't look at that, and I don't hang out with those people. Do you remember that game growing up, the game of cooties? Who played cooties? <laughs> uh, cracked me up just thinking about that this week. The game of cooties. I hadn't thought about it in forever, but it so gets at they have cooties. Don't get the cooties. Boy, we were all young Pharisees at a time, weren't we? See, and this was their understanding of sin. But listen to Jesus in, in, in Matthew 15. Again, he's talking about clean and unclean. And in verse 16, he says, Are you so dull? Do you not get it? He says, Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes out in the stomach and then out of the body? But the thing that comes out of the mouth from, comes from your heart 
And these make a man unclean, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man clean, unclean. Uncleanness is where? It's in here, says Jesus. Do you know that? Because you know what? A Pharisee basically at the end of the day is too proud to actually think sin is in them. That the source of sin, that the cause of sin is in them. No, it's not in me. It's my environment. Satan made me do it. Or I got the spirit of tobacco. I don't smoke. (laughs) No, your wicked little heart is what caused you to do it. And see, what we're talking about now is religion. Religion is always outside in, as opposed to gospel, which is inside out. Religion is the belief that the way I become unclean is outside in, and also the way that I become righteous is outside in. That's why religion is all about cleaning the outside of the cup. It's all about making the outside look good. It's all about externals. It's all about appearances. I do good on the outside so I can feel good on the inside. Religion is all about performance, where the whole motivation, I think, is if I perform good enough, then God will somehow like me. If I do this just right, he'll approve of me and he'll accept me. And see, I think Nietzsche actually was right when he said all religion is a power play because that's what religious people do. They use their goodness and their rule-keeping and their right living as a power play. First, as a power play with others. Gives them a one-up. It gives them reason to feel like they're better or morally superior. And I'm going to tell you something. If you feel morally and spiritually superior to anyone right now, you're a hypocrite. But even more so than being just a power play with other people, it becomes a power play with God. Because God, look, all that I do for you I'm no longer the debtor. Now, God, you're the debtor. You owe me. And see, I think this is why many control freaks become religious hypocrites because they can now use their goodness, their performance, as leverage to control God. And this is why fasting one year, one day a year isn't enough. I'll fast a hundred days of the year. Ah, God, you owe me. Or it's why Sabbath turns into a hundred laws. Because the more I do, the more God owes me. And I'm going to tell you something. Jesus didn't come to establish that. Jesus didn't die on a cross for that. In fact, Jesus came to destroy that. And I'm going to tell you what makes religion so poisonous and so deadly. It's not just the masks and the wrong assumptions about sin but it's what lies at the core. And look at what Jesus says in verse 27 and 28. You talk about an image, a whitewashed tomb, which is what they had to do to tombs in that, that day. They had to paint them white so that people knew where they were because if you touched a tomb, you couldn't celebrate Passover because you were unclean, so they had to be marked. And Jesus takes this image and he says, this is what you are, Pharisees. You're like those tombs. You look so good on the outside, all white. But inside you're full of death and uncleanness. Because when clean and unclean are outside in, you never get to the heart. You never deal with the heart. Because sin is always out there. And I'm never then getting to the root of my sin You know what then lies at the root of me? Death. And if you want to know what's really behind or underneath this impeccable exterior, do you know what it is? It's self-worship. 
Jesus says in this um, rebuke, he says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. To exalt oneself is to worship oneself. And see, that's what's at the core of religious people. Even though they may appear to be the ultimate God worshipers, really they're only worshiping themselves. And I want you to know that self-worship is probably the most satanic thing there is. It's what made Satan, Satan. He worshiped himself. And that's why Jesus calls these guys snakes and the offspring of vipers. And at the end of the day, do you know what self-worship gets someone? Look at verse 33. How? And this is why religion is so damning. It's damning. Because at the end of the day, it's not about God. It's about me. It's not a righteousness that God produces and gives to bankrupt me. But it's a righteousness that perfect me performs and gives to God. It's not God saving me. It's me saving me. It's a self-salvation strategy that actually allows me to avoid God and all that God offers in Christ. A religious person says, my confidence is not in God, it's in me. It's why religion becomes so damning, because it causes me to think way too much about myself and what I can do, which turns into self-worship. And it causes me to think way too little of my sin and my utter helplessness to save myself. This is why Jesus says the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Because they don't make much of themselves. And they make much of their sin. And they make much. They make much of God's grace. Are you steeped in religion today? I think our hearts are so bent to religion all the time because we long for God's approval. And we long to say, God, here's what I do for you. Here is what I offer to you. Will you accept me? Will you like me because of everything that I have now done? But here's the bottom line. We can't clean ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Self-salvation is never going to work. Isaiah 64, verse 6, even our, says even our best acts of righteousness are nothing more than filthy rags to God. And that's the bad news of religion right there. But here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus can. And this is the gospel. Jesus came to the world to make us clean. And it's not outside in clean, it's inside out. And it's not by our work, but it's through his work. And the gospel is this, is, is this awesome, incredible news of this great exchange. Where I can come with my filthy rags. And I can exchange them. For his righteousness. I can come with all my unclean, with my pathetic, dirty, rotten, wicked heart. I can take it and get a new heart. It's gospel. Jesus, who had no sin, he became sin. He became my sin. He became your sin. So we could become the righteousness of God. I know I sound like a broken record right now. But Christ on the cross tells me two things about myself. 
I'm that sinful. The God of the universe had to do that. And I'm utterly helpless. All set? Fell asleep? Okay. All right. It's all good, man. This happened in Acts once, didn't it? Fell out a window. (laughs) Randy. (laughs) Randy knows his name. God, we pray for this brother. Just ask him that you'd give him everything that he needs right now. And God, um, as we just wrap this up, let that just push in our hearts how utterly helpless we are to save ourselves. But that the God of the universe came and became sin and became unclean and became, in a sense, helpless. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we today could be clean and right. And that we could know that we're that loved. God, you know us to the core of our being. You know everything about us. And you looked at us and you said, I want that. I want relationship with that. I'm willing to die for that. And so, God, all the places where our hearts go to get approval, to know that we're okay, God, I just pray that we would bring those hearts to you today because you're the only one who knows us to the core and you're the only one who loves us that much. And God, out of that, I just pray that Shema would flow then. God, when we... Look at what you have done for us in Christ. That it would not only set us free from our hiding and our pretending and our need to cover ourselves, but it would set us free to love you with our whole heart, with our whole mind, and all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand with me?